The Yokai Stories of Lafcadio Hearn A Literal Halloween Special You are walking down the street. Days get so dark so quickly in the autumn. It seems that the sun barely bothers showing up, only for a few hours, so that now, early in the evening, it's already pitch dark. Sick white light from the lamppost. This suburban neighborhood has infinite rows of the same kind of terrace house. Grey concrete drenched in rain. You start wondering if you miss the street where you need to turn right. Your socks are wet and your raincoat stopped being waterproof a long time ago. Am I pretty? What? You didn't realize there was a woman coming your way. You almost walked into her. Sorry, you mumble, and try to keep going. She doesn't move. Am I pretty? She's wearing a face mask, of course, like you and everyone else outside these days. COVID-19 and all. Excuse me? You say. Because the question is strange. Maybe she's drunk or on drugs. Am I pretty? She says, once again. And then, she removes the face mask, slowly, revealing a bloody smile carved with a knife from each corner of her mouth, right up to the cheeks, breaking her face in two, so she's more of a grotesque puppet than a human. You have just met Kuchisaki Onna, the slit-mouthed woman, one of the youngest yokai, an entity that, according to the Japanese folklore, comes from the spiritual world and mingles with humans. Sometimes the yokai just want to play. Other times, their intentions may be a bit less kind. Would Uchisaki Onna fancy traveling from Japan to the rest of the world? With her face mask as the perfect disguise, she would certainly have it easy to walk around cities these days. In fact, yokai have been traveling from the east to the west for a while now at least in our imagination, and for this, we have one woman to thank, Koizumi Setsu.
Let's travel back in time now, to the end of the 19th century. We are in a small bedroom in Tokyo. Koizumi Setsu has spent all day roaming around second-hand bookshops in the area, looking for a very specific kind of book, one on yokai legends. She looks for the oldest volumes, the ones that are written by authors people forgot a long time ago, especially in these times of the Meiji era, when Japan is awakening as an industrial superpower. People rave about machines these days, not ghosts. Except, of course, her husband. He is a foreigner from the West, and one of his eccentricities is that he is obsessed with ghosts. That is why she reads all the stories she can find and then retells them to him in English, so he can understand. There is only one lamp in the small room. The autumnal wind lashes on the maple tree in the garden and its shadow shivers on the wall. She starts narrating the first story she read that day. Later, the next day, he will write what he remembers in English, adding a few details here and there, focusing on those parts he found the most unsettling. And so, the yokai get ready to travel from the east to the west, through the imagination of thousands and thousands of readers. A Dead Secret A long time ago, in the province of Tamba, there lived a rich merchant named Inamuraya Jensuki. He had a daughter called Osono. As she was very clever and pretty, he thought it would be a pity to let her grow up with only such teaching as the country teachers could give her. So he sent her, in care of some trusty attendants, to Kyoto that she might be trained in the polite accomplishments taught to the ladies of the capital. After she had thus been educated, she was married to a friend of her father's family, a merchant named Nagaraya, and she lived happily with him for nearly four years. They had one child, a boy, but Osono fell ill and died in the fourth year after her marriage. On the night after the funeral of Osono, her little son said that his mamma had come back and was in the room upstairs. She had smiled at him, but would not talk to him. So he became afraid and ran away. Then some of the family went upstairs to the room which had been Osono's, and they were startled to see, by the light of a small lamp which had been kindled before a shrine in that room, the figure of the dead mother. She appeared as if standing in front of a tanzu, or chest of drawers, that still contained her ornaments and her wearing apparel. Her head and shoulders could be very distinctly seen, 
but from the waist downwards, the figure thinned into invisibility. It was like an imperfect reflection of her, and transparent as a shadow on water. Then, the folk were afraid and left the room. Below, they consulted together, and the mother of Osono's husband said, A woman is fond of her small things, and Osono was much attached to her belongings. Perhaps she has come back to look at them. Many dead persons will do that, unless the things be given to the parish temple. If we present Osono's robes and girdles to the temple, her spirit will probably find rest. It was agreed that this should be done as soon as possible. So, on the following morning, the drawers were emptied, and all of Osono's ornaments and dresses were taken to the temple. But she came back the next night, and looked at the Tanzu as before. And she came back also on the night following, and the night after that, and every night. And the house became a house of fear. The mother of Osono's husband then went to the parish temple, and told the chief priest all that had happened, and asked for ghostly counsel. The temple was a Zen temple, and the head priest was a learned old man, known as Daigon Osho. He said, There must be something about which she is anxious in or near that Tanzu. But we emptied all the drawers, replied the woman. There is nothing in the Tanzu. Well, said Daigon Osho, Tonight I shall go to your house and keep watch in that room and see what can be done. You must give orders that no person shall enter the room while I am watching, unless I call. After sundown, Daigon Oshu went to the house and found the room made ready for him. He remained there alone, reading the sutras, and nothing appeared until after the hour of the rat. Then the figure of Osono suddenly outlined itself in front of the Tanzu. Her face had a wistful look, and she kept her eyes fixed upon the Tanzu. The priest uttered the holy formula prescribed in such cases, and then, addressing the figure by the cameo of Osono, said, I have come here in order to help you. Perhaps in that Tanzu there is something about which you have reason to feel anxious. Shall I try to find it for you? The shadow appeared to give assent by a slight motion of the head, and the priest, rising, opened the top drawer. It was empty. Successively, he opened the second, the third, and the fourth drawer. He searched carefully behind them and beneath them. He carefully examined the interior of the chest. He found nothing but the figure remained gazing as wistfully as before. What can she want? thought the priest. Suddenly, it occurred to him that there might be something hidden under the paper with which the drawers were lined. He removed the lining of the first drawer. Nothing. He removed the lining of the second and third drawers. Still nothing. But under the lining of the lowermost drawer, he found a letter. Is this the thing about which you have been troubled? He asked. The shadow of the woman turned toward him, her faint gaze fixed upon the letter. Shall I burn it for you? He asked. She bowed before him. It shall be burnt in the temple this very morning, he promised. 
and no one shall read it except myself. The figure smiled and vanished. Dawn was breaking as the priest descended to the stairs to find the family waiting anxiously below. Do not be anxious, he said to them. She will not appear again. And she never did. The letter was burned. It was a love letter written to Osono in the time of her studies at Kyoto. But the priest alone knew what was in it, and the secret died with him. After the first story, Setsu finds that her husband is watching the shadows on the wall, and he looks back from time to time, as if to make sure nobody else is in the room. It never ceases to amaze her that he is terrified of what he loves – ghosts, monsters, horror stories. She was certainly surprised to discover this about him when they married. He's always been a softly spoken man, serious, sensitive, considerate, an English teacher, a writer. Then one night, he confessed to her that, as a child, he was terrified of the dark. He couldn't stand it. His great aunt, with whom he lived at the time, was told to treat this fear by every night locking him in his pitch-dark bedroom. Since he told her this, Setsu has kept the lamp on when she tells the stories. Especially on nights like this, when one can already smell the deadly cold of the winter and confuse the howling of the wind with human screams. Yuki Ona. In a village of Musashi province, there lived two woodcutters, Musaku and Minokichi. At the time of which I am speaking, Musaku was an old man, and Minokichi, his apprentice, was a lad of 18 years. Every day they went together to a forest situated about five miles from their village. 
On the way to that forest, there is a wide river to cross, and there is a ferry boat. Several times a bridge was built where the ferry is, but the bridge was each time carried away by a flood. No common bridge can resist the current there when the river rises. Musaki and Minokichi were on their way home one very cold evening when a great snowstorm overtook them. They reached the ferry and they found that the boatman had gone away, leaving his boat on the other side of the river. It was no day for swimming and the woodcutters took shelter in the ferryman's hut, thinking themselves lucky to find any shelter at all. There was no brazier in the hut, nor any place in which to make a fire. It was only a two-mat hut, with a single door but no window. Musaku and Minokichi fastened the door and lay down to rest, with their straw raincoats over them. At first they did not feel very cold, and they thought that the storm would soon be over. The old man almost immediately fell asleep, but the boy, Minokichi, lay awake a long time, listening to the awful wind and the continual slashing of the snow against the door. The river was roaring, and the hut swayed and creaked like a junk at sea. It was a terrible storm, and the air was every moment becoming colder, and Minokichi shivered under his raincoat. But at last, in spite of the cold, he too fell asleep. He was awakened by a showering of snow in his face. The door of the hut had been forced open, and by the snow light he saw a woman in the room, a woman all in white. She was bending over Masaku and blowing her breath upon him, and her breath was like a bright white smoke. Almost in the same moment she turned to Monokichi and stooped over him. He tried to cry out, but found he could not utter any sound. The white woman bent down over him, lower and lower, until her face almost touched him, and he saw that she was very beautiful, though her eyes made him afraid. For a little time she continued to look at him, then she smiled, and she whispered, I intended to treat you like the other man, but I cannot help feeling some pity for you, because you are so young. You are a pretty boy, Minokichi, and I will not hurt you now. But if you ever tell anybody, even your own mother, about what you have seen this night, I shall know it, and then I will kill you. Remember what I say. With these words, she turned from him and passed through the doorway. Then he found himself able to move, and he sprang up and looked out, but the woman was nowhere to be seen, and the snow was driving furiously into the hut. Minokichi closed the door and secured it by fixing several billets of wood against it. He wondered if the wind had blown it open. He thought that he might have been only dreaming, and might have mistaken the gleam of the snow light in the doorway for the figure of a white woman, but he could not be sure. He called to Masaku and was frightened because the old man did not answer. He put out his hand in the dark and touched Mosaku's face and found that it was ice. Mosaku was stark and dead. By dawn, the storm was over, and when the ferryman returned to his station a little after sunrise, 
he found Minokichi lying senseless beside the frozen body of Musaku. Minokichi was promptly cared for and soon came to himself, but he remained a long time ill from the effects of the cold of that terrible night. He had been greatly frightened also by the old man's death, but he said nothing about the vision of the woman in white. As soon as he got well again, he returned to his calling, going alone every morning to the forest and coming back at nightfall with his bundles of wood, which his mother helped him to sell. One evening in the winter of the following year, as he was on his way home, he overtook a girl who happened to be travelling by the same road. She was a tall, slim girl, very good-looking, and she answered Minokichi's greeting in a voice as pleasant to the ear as the voice of a bird song. And then he walked beside her. They began to talk. The girl said that her name was Oyuki, as she had lately lost both of her parents, and that she was going to Yedo, where she happened to have some poor relations who might help. Minokichi soon felt charmed by this strange girl, and the more that he looked at her, the handsomer she appeared to be. He asked her whether she was yet betrothed, and she answered laughingly that she was free. Then, in her turn, she asked Minokichi whether he was married or pledged to marry, and he told her that, although he had only a widowed mother to support, the question of an honourable daughter-in-law had not yet been considered, as he was very young. After these confidences, they walked on for a long while without speaking. But, as the proverb declares, when the wish is there, the eyes can say as much as the mouth. And by the time they reached the village, they'd become very much pleased with each other. And then Minokichi asked Oyuki to rest a while at his house. After some shy hesitation, she went there with him. And his mother made her welcome and prepared a warm meal for her. Oyuki behaved so nicely that Minokichi's mother took a sudden fancy to her and persuaded her to delay her journey to Yedo. And the natural end of the matter was that Yuki never went to Yedo at all. She remained in the house as an honourable daughter-in-law. Oyuki proved a very good daughter-in-law. When Minokichi's mother came to die some five years later, her last words were words of affection and praise for the wife of her son. And Oyuki bore Minokichi ten children, boys and girls, handsome children all of them, and very fair of skin. The country folk thought Oyuki a wonderful person, by nature different from themselves. Most of the peasant women age early, but Oyuki, even after having become the mother of ten children, looked as young and fresh as on the day when she'd first come to the village. One night, after the children had gone to sleep, Oyuki was sewing by the light of a paper lamp, and Minokichi, watching her, said, To see you sewing there with a light on your face makes me think of a strange thing that happened when I was a lad of eighteen. I then saw somebody as beautiful and, and white as you are now. Indeed, she was very like you. Without lifting her eyes from her work, Oyuki responded, Tell me about her. Where did you see her? And then Minokichi told her about the terrible night in the ferryman's hut, and about the white woman that had stooped above him, smiling and whispering, and about the silent death of old Musaku. And he said, Asleep or awake, that was the only time that I saw a being as beautiful as you. Of course, 
She was not a human being, and I was afraid of her, very much afraid. But she was so white. Indeed, I've never, never been sure whether it was a dream that I saw, or the woman of the snow. Oyuki flung down her sewing and arose and bowed above Minokichi where he sat and shrieked into his face. It was I, Yuki. It was. And I told you then that I would kill you if you ever said one word about it. But for those children asleep there, I would kill you this very moment. And now you'd better take very, very good care of them. For if ever they have reason to complain of you, I will treat you as you deserve. And even as she screamed, her voice became thin, like a crying of wind. Then she melted into a bright white mist that spired to the roof beams and shuddered away through the smoke hold. Never again was she seen. Lafcadio asks Setsu to stop at that second story. He finds the idea of the wife turning out to be a yokai too unsettling. He looks into her eyes as he says that, as if, for a split second, he doubted Setsu himself. Have you ever feared that those closest to you are not who they say they are? Or that they might turn into someone or something else? Yokai seem to have an affinity with women, and they do like to pass as them. Or perhaps Lafcadio Hearn had a taste for yokai stories that involved women. We can't be sure. Many of the yokai stories we have today survived centuries and centuries thanks to the version he wrote in English. Lafcadio's fears were not all born from neurosis, his own family had ghosted him. His parents, said to have been star-crossed lovers, an Irish surgeon and a Greek aristocrat, abandoned him to the care of his Irish great-aunt when he was a child. He was then sent to boarding school first in France and then in England. This was a time when having a mixed ancestry meant that you were not considered white or even European. When the extended family he had left went bankrupt, he was forced to emigrate to the United States, where he struggled to survive, before becoming a journalist and then a writer. An outsider that found his home in the cultures and countries that welcomed him. New Orleans, Martinique, and Japan, where he went on a journalistic assignment from which he never returned. He even got citizenship and a Japanese name there, Koizumi Yakumo. And there, aided by Setsu, he became obsessed with the yokai. Who knows, perhaps he was not as obsessed with the idea of yokai as monsters, but as remnants of the past. Maybe he dreamt of his mother coming back for him one day, to tell him how happy she was that it all had turned well for him in the end. 
Or maybe he expected a ghostly visit from his first wife, Alethea Foley, who he himself may have ghosted after realizing that nobody in the United States would employ him if he was married to an African-American woman. As author Jonathan Dee says when writing about Lafcadio Hearn, the possibility that the dead, whose absences are so painful and hard to understand, are still among us and may still want something from us, this is the seed of horror, but also of fantasy. Thank you very much for being with us for this Halloween special at Litro. Many thanks to Greg Page for reading Lafcadio Hearn's ghost stories for us. These were taken from Hearn's book titled Guaidan, the Stories and Studies of Strange Things, available at the Project Gutenberg website. Thank you as well to Jane Marshall, Serene Allen and Erika Cotto for their collaboration in creating this podcast. The quote mentioned at the end of the podcast by Jonathan Dee is from his very insightful article titled Why Lafcadio Hearn's Ghost Stories Still Haunt Us, published in The New Yorker on the 16th of September 2019. To stay in touch, please follow us on social media, iTunes and Spotify. <laughs>